Hello and welcome to a new episode of Finsight, Global Financial Institutions Industry Podcast. My name is Kate Geale and I'm an associate in Baker McKenzie's Dispute Resolution Practice in London. Today, our episode will be on cross-border fraud and asset tracing, specifically in the context of sovereign wealth funds. As we will see in the course of this podcast, sovereign wealth funds are particular targets of fraud, with high stakes both politically and financially, and that's why we're talking about it today. Joining me are two partners from our London office, Charles Thompson and Henry Garfield. Both Charles and Henry are experienced fraud practitioners with extensive experience working for sovereign wealth funds in the context of the fund having been the victim of a fraud and working with the fund to maximise the recovery of misappropriated assets. Welcome to you both and thanks for joining this discussion. So Charles, before we get into the detail, please can you set the scene for us by explaining why fraud is such a big issue for sovereign wealth funds? Yes, thanks, Kate. And I think before I turn to sovereign wealth funds specifically, I just wanted to touch on the fact that fraud is clearly an issue for everyone at all times, and particularly immediately following the pandemic. To take an example, the global spend on financial crime compliance of financial institutions alone is projected to be around the $215 billion mark this year alone. Um, And then um, more relevantly here, PwC's 2020 Global Economic Crime and Fraud Survey suggests that just under 50% of companies have experienced fraud in the last two years. So there's no doubt that fraud is an issue for everyone out there. What about sovereign wealth funds? Well, I would certainly say that they are particularly exposed to fraud for a variety of reasons. First, the vast sums of money in which sovereign wealth funds are often involved. Vast sums of money, as we all know, create motive. And it also means that the greater the amount of money to misappropriate, the greater the extent of the losses when that fraud materialises. Secondly, the complex, diverse portfolios in multiple jurisdictions in which sovereign wealth funds operate. It may be a type of fund, it may be a share or shares in companies, it may be in the form of crypto assets, it may be in the form of bonds. Whatever the type of form, it is almost always complex and diverse. Thirdly, it's managed by multiple asset managers. Multiplicity of people creates incentive and uh, and greater opportunity to try to conceal And finally, they are complex structures, not just the structure of the transactions, but also their nature. There may be different governing laws and different jurisdictions involved. To take an example, it's not uncommon to see a fund manager who may be based in the UK. That fund manager may be managing real estate in another part of Europe and the US, for example. It may be in respect of a fund held in an offshore entity and governed by an offshore law. All of that creates a degree of complexity uh, and makes it easier to conceal a type of fraud. So together, I hope it's become clear that both the structure and the volume of investments can create both the motive and the opportunity for fraud against sovereign wealth funds. Just last year, one of the world's largest uh, sovereign wealth funds, the National Norwegian Investment Fund, was successfully targeted by fraudsters 
and lost over $10 million. It involved an advanced data breach, which was used to access information regarding an agreed loan from the Sovereign Wealth Fund to a microfinance institution in Cambodia. Criminals then impersonated the institution, falsifying documents and payment details so that the money was diverted to a bank account in Mexico with the same name as the intended borrower. That's a pretty common push payment fraud. And a 10 million loss is quite a, a, a small amount relative to the amount in which sovereign wealth funds often find themselves the victim, which can run into hundreds of millions and sometimes billions of dollars. And the final point I want to mention is the tension in relation to political issues that do specifically apply to sovereign wealth funds. There is a tension between the need for deterrence, punishment and the public pressure to recover stolen monies against not tipping off a fraudster, at least before preservation steps are taken. For example, freezing orders, which Henry is going to be talking about, as well as the vulnerability of revealing an internal fraud. In other words, once it becomes apparent that the sovereign wealth fund has become the target of fraud, it can encourage further frauds to be committed. So as you can see, Kate, um, yes is my answer to your question. I do think that we are likely to see further fraud committed specifically against sovereign wealth funds. Interesting. Thanks, Charles. And the political considerations you mentioned really demonstrate the added complexities of dealing with a fraud committed against a sovereign wealth fund as compared with other corporates. And it's um, obviously important to keep these under review. Absolutely. It really demonstrates the need for um, ongoing compliance and co good corporate governance to, well, hopefully prevent the fraud or if the fraud unravels, just take steps to try to uh, recover the monies as quickly as possible. And, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Henry on that front shortly. Absolutely. So, so Henry, yes, turning to you now, what are the immediate legal and practical steps one should take once a fraud is suspected or discovered? Yeah, thanks, Kate. And hi, everyone. It's good to be with you today. Um, Kate, I think sadly for most victims of fraud, particularly the victims of large-scale complex fraud of the type that are often committed against sovereign wealth funds, which Charles has already touched on, the road to recovery of stolen assets is a long one. Um, but there are a number of steps that can be taken in the period immediately following the fraud, sometimes within the first couple of hours, if not days of the fraud being discovered, that are absolutely critical in determining the likelihood and amount of any eventual recovery. And in my own mind, those, those sort of steps uh, and immediate considerations break down into two main buckets in my mind, legal issues and practical, and practical considerations and practical issues, and both sort of run in parallel, but I, th I think of them sort of a, a bit separately. In terms of the legal considerations, um, my thoughts immediately turn to information and evidence gathering and the preservation of assets where possible. I mean, turning first to information and evidence gathering, the very first thing you're going to need when you've been the victim of a fraud or you need to conduct asset tracing is information. Information about what's been stolen from you, where it is now, who was involved, etc. And that, that information is, obvi for obvious reasons, unlikely to come from the people responsible for the fraud. So you need to think about other sources of information, third-party banks, other intermediaries, 
professional advisors in some cases. And, and the most typical way to obtain that sort of information, particularly in common law jurisdictions, is by way of some form of disclosure order um, against the, the the entity or the individual who has the who has the um, information. And in some in some cases, you may even go as far as seeking some sort of search order as well to to to, to recover documents and evidence. And that sort of Evidence and, and 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 information is required right at the start of the process, but is also required throughout as well um, as you, as you go through the the, the um, process of identifying what's been stolen from you, where it is, and how you're going to get it back. And once you have that information, it's then important to act on it quickly and effectively to secure further evidence and preserve any assets from dissipation. In most cases, it's going to be probably um, necessary to quickly identify where your assets have gone uh, and who, who might be holding onto them and to put in place some sort of freeze over those assets to stop them being dissipated bef um, uh, before you can reclaim them. And in parallel, you might also want to seek to freeze the assets of those um, who you suspect of being involved in the wrongdoing so that you have assets against which you can enforce a judgment further down the line. Because the last thing you want to do is, is spend several years uh, chasing down uh, stolen assets, only to find that you have uh, a judgment that, but you, you have no assets against which to enforce that judgment, which makes it a pretty useless judgment in a lot of cases. So it's important to think about these things right from the outset. Um, and the, the most usual way to do this is, is, is by using some sort of freezing order. Um, but the, the key point about a freezing order is that you need to move um, very quickly to get one. So yeah, those, those are the sort of initial legal considerations I'm, I'm immediately thinking of, Kate. Thank you. That's really helpful. And in parallel, you mentioned there are certain practical considerations you'd want to be thinking about right up front. Can you sort of elaborate on those those considerations? Yeah, I mean, the key one is strategy. Um, you need to think about strategy, obviously, to a certain extent before you run off and start seeking disclosure orders and freezing um, orders, obviously. But once you've taken those initial steps, it's really important to plot out um, a really robust, globally focused, holistic, joined up strategy. Um, because, and that, that needs to be joined up across all the different jurisdictions that are at play here, because you don't want to do something or make an application or make a submission in one jurisdiction that completely undermines or at worst defeats what you're, what you're trying to do in another jurisdiction. Things can get pretty messy um, when that happens. You also need to start thinking about building up your internal team so you've got the right sort of team internally um, to, 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 to work out what's happened and, and trace the assets. Um, you need to make sure you've got the right people leading that and you've got the right sort of people with technical knowledge of the transactions um, involved. And clearly no one in the internal team can have any connection whatsoever to any of the suspected wrongdoing. And, and then you need to think about your external team as well. You know, you're going to need lawyers, um, you're going to need forensic accountants to unpick financial transactions. And I guess what, what, one of my top tips is to always ensure that you're getting that local law input as soon as possible. Don't assume that the law is the same in one jurisdiction as it is um, in, 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 in the others. And I guess my, my, my final comment, Kate, is that, that as Charles touched on already, as soon as something like this happens, there's bound to be um, uh, either publicity about it or a drive for there to be publicity about it. And I would just caution 
um, against um, making things public automatically, although there may be, may be a push to do it, um, because some of the legal issues we've already touched on, such as going for um, freezing orders and other sort of asset preservation orders, are only effective if they're done with the element of surprise and confidentiality. So think very carefully before you go public too early is my sort of, uh, is another top tip from me. So those are the sort of key legal and practical considerations um, in the early days. Thanks, Henry. And that overview is really helpful and I think really highlights the importance and indeed the challenge of striking that really careful balance between moving quickly to protect your position while taking a really considered and informed approach. And in fact, those, um, those legal and practical considerations go hand in hand, don't they? Because you know, your team will need mainly to change over time as you get more information and you find out that other jurisdictions are invoked. So um, it's sort of like the interplay between those two is, is, is really important. Yeah. And a key point there, Kate, I think is being nimble. So having a strategy in place, so you know where you're going, but being having the ability and the flexibility to shift, um, you know, almost at a moment's notice when you discover that actually there's a pot of assets in another jurisdiction or, or there's another means of getting to where you want to be, then flexing quickly. I think I think being nimble is a really important part of the team you're putting together and the strategy you're putting in place. I think mm. it's a really excellent point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Henry. That deals with the, the sort of immediate steps and immediate considerations. But thinking ahead, what happens next? What are the kind of longer term issues that need to be considered and the routes available to you when you've had a fraud committed against you? Well, obviously, this is all going to be very fact specific um, because the facts are going to determine um, you know, what laws are triggered, what jurisdictions are triggered, which avenues you can and can't go down. But I think there are a few general pointers that need to be considered as part of your strategy, um, as part of any sort of um, fraud and asset tracing exercise, um, particularly when it's got a multi-jurisdictional element to it, which it almost certainly will when we're talking about um, sovereign wealth funds for the reasons Charles laid out at the start. And I think one of the first questions to consider is is which legal mechanism uh, you're going to use to get your money back. Are you going to use civil litigation? Um, is there a possibility to go down a slightly more confidential arbitration route? Is it possible to try and start talking to those responsible about a sort of voluntary return of any money um, stolen from you? And in most cases, the, the, the relevant conduct is also going to amount to a criminal offence, such as fraud or money laundering. So you also need to think very carefully um, about whether it is advisable or possible to start or have started on your behalf a criminal investigation into the matter, either in your home jurisdiction or in any other jurisdictions. And this is going to be really relevant, obviously, in the case of sovereign wealth funds, where it's public money, uh, largely speaking, that we're talking about. Of course. And what would you say are the sort of pros and cons of going down the criminal route? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really tricky decision. And sometimes this decision is going to be taken out of the hands of the, the fund because others will start a criminal um, proceeding in parallel. Mm. Um, I mean, on the one hand, the criminal authorities have sweeping powers to collect evidence, both in, in the local country and um, overseas. They have the power to arrest people and investigate uh, wrongdoing. But I would caution against necess- necessarily being the right way to go in all circumstances, because once you've got that investigation started, it's very difficult for you as the, the victim of the fraud to keep it under control and to keep it confidential and keep it going where you want to go and maybe even at the pace you want it um, to go at. So in in some cases, 
starting a criminal process may be enormously beneficial to get you what you want, but it comes with a risk as well that you need to be aware of before you go down that route. Mm. And, and then I guess other practical, other sort of longer term issues I'm thinking about are things like what is your cause of action? Do you have some sort of contractual claim? Is it a tort claim? Is there a sort of, has there been a breach of fiduciary duty? Do you have claims against third parties um, who may have been involved in any wrongdoing because they've sort of knowingly assisted with the wrongdoing? And it's also important not to forget about insolvency remedies as well, because insolvency or bankruptcy can be used as a really powerful weapon against the wrongdoer to bankrupt them and claim in their bankruptcy. So don't don't forget about um, insolvency remedies. And then thinking about where in the world you, you want to attack, in which jurisdictions, um, uh, that, that's going to be a crucial a crucial piece of the big jigsaw as well. Yeah. And, and what kind of factors might affect that decision on jurisdiction? Well, obviously, it's going to, it's going to be fact-specific, as, as I said earlier. But I think a key point for me is where is the defendant or where are the, where are the defendants? Um, because there's no better place to put pressure on them, um, legally speaking, than in their home jurisdiction where they are subject to the personal jurisdiction of those courts and those authorities. So thinking about where the defendants are domiciled, which jurisdictional regimes may apply um, because of that. I'm thinking about where the assets are as well, because ultimately you want your money back and you want compensation properly. So thinking about where ultimately you are going to want to want to need to um, enforce any judgment um, that you get. And also there are some just clear advantages of some jurisdictions over others. So for example, is it possible in the jurisdiction you're thinking about to get a worldwide freezing order over all the worldwide assets of of uh, any any defendant. So there may be some legal advantages to going into those jurisdictions um, as well. So those are the sort of long-term um, issues you know, I'm thinking of once we've got over those initial hurdles, Kate. I hope that's helpful. That's really helpful. Thanks, Henry. And again, goes back to the things you were saying at the start around having the right team in place who can advise on all these different areas when you're um, thinking about you know, what causes of action, where to pursue proceedings and so on. Exactly. Yeah, completely. So, so Charles, turning to you now and looking even further ahead, do you expect fraud to be on the rise post-pandemic? And would you say this is especially the case in the case of sovereign wealth funds or maybe more broadly? Uh, thanks, Kate. Yes, in short, both. I think generally, I would say that the pandemic uh, will fuel further fraud, just as the pandemic has seen an immediate rise in fraud as companies look to recoup losses and individuals are made increasingly accountable for the losses attributable to the business. And I think the post-pandemic will continue to fuel further fraud. And I think that uh, there are a number of other factors that also will lead to an increase in the fraud. First, the ease and speed of transacting internationally. And secondly, digitalization, which is closely aligned with the speed with which you can transact. And, and if you just need an example, and the mid to large digital financial firms have seen a 40% increase in successful cyber attacks since before the first lockdown, an enormous uh, increase, 40% within the space of, a, of about a year. So the number of cyber attacks that are occurring are, are definitely on the rise. As regards specifically sovereign wealth funds, 
undoubtedly for the reasons I stated earlier, that is the volume and complexity of the portfolios that pertain to sovereign wealth funds will make it at greater risk of being the subject of fraud, uh, and in particular, the nature of their investments. So if we take them as an example, they have substantial investments, typically in crypto assets, which give rise to their own problems and create opportunities to, uh, to, to conceal wrongdoing. Yeah, I was I was actually going to say we've seen a, a huge rise of crypto assets in recent years. And I was wondering, in particular, what kind of challenges that presents that perhaps we weren't having to deal with five, 10 years ago? Yes, I think I, 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 th I think um, there are particular challenges, but also opportunities um, as the law evolves. And just before I come on to that, I did want to mention it would be remiss of me uh, not to refer to the converse of uh, a sovereign wealth fund being the victim of fraud, because I did want to mention that um, there are also uh, there is also an evolving trend where the sovereign wealth funds may find themselves the subject of a fraud-related claim, and I think it will be in limited circumstances only that this example may apply. But nevertheless, it is certainly an emerging theme that we're seeing. And that relates typically to the type of sovereign wealth fund, which is a state development fund. And, and what I mean by that is a, a state where state owned assets are transferred to sovereign wealth funds for them to manage and monetize. So, so one way of monetizing the assets is for the fund to bring in external co-investors, for example, large international and institutional investors, such as private equity sponsors and other funds, insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera, and in order to syndicate a portion of its assets to the external investors. And now, if we look at what the common theme is telling us, it is that where businesses such as those state development funds are, uh, are being forced to create environmental, social and governance targets, then if those targets are said to be false or misleading or they don't reach those targets, it's leading to claims being made by investors. Um, and, and, and I would expect those types of claims um, to be on the rise as against these state development funds in the same way that we're seeing those types of claims being levied against common financial institutions. And that's where it, it does overlap closely with sovereign immunity and from suit or enforcement, um, which can protect a fund from such claims. But globally, in many developed jurisdictions, uh, there are commercial activity exceptions which provide that they are not immune from suit or enforcement. And the general trend is to ensure that sovereign wealth funds uh, grant a waiver over such immunity. Um, so it shouldn't be assumed that, in fact, they can just um, rely on the state immunity or sovereign immunity that may otherwise exist. And further details of that in the trend that we're seeing um, can be heard on our Finding Balance series, the post-COVID landscape for financial institutions, which is on our site. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in this subject to, to read further on it. Um, so, um, sorry, Kate, I, I didn't answer your question directly in relation. No, that's to okay. That was a very interesting sidebar. <laughs> crypto assets. So, what what challenges does it present for sovereign wealth funds? Well, 
first of all, it can create difficulties of tracing into assets um, because until recently, the law has um, not, not been certain as to whether or not crypto assets can be regarded as a form of property against which um, a crypto asset such as cryptocurrency can either be frozen and most importantly enforced against. Um, but the law is moving on, as we've seen, for example, with backwards tracing, which allows a victim of a fraud to trace into monies that we use to satisfy, for example, a pre-existing debt. So what has happened recently uh, is that um, the various courts around the world have started to analyse carefully whether crypto assets can be regarded as a form of property. And if we take Singapore as an example, the Singapore International Commercial Court um, has agreed to operate on that assumption that crypto assets are a legal currency, meaning they can be deemed to be held on trust by a perpetrator of a fraud or a third party. And the same has been found by the English courts, as well as other Commonwealth courts. And um, it's not a complete answer because built-in coin mixing um, can mean that there are restrictions on the ability to trace, for example, at common law, which is applicable obviously to common law jurisdictions as opposed to civil law jurisdictions. So I don't want to give the impression that it's always easy and straightforward and the law is still emerging. But in essence, I would say that and crypto assets have provided an easier pathway through which to trace assets and be able to recover them than has traditionally been the case with some other assets, such as insurance wrappers, for example. And so it's Thank obviously you. good news um, for anyone seeking some form of proprietary injunction that is a specific right um, to a specific type of crypto asset. Um, and similarly, the ease through which enforcement um, can, can take place. Uh, the main challenge is finding out where, where the crypto asset is, who it's held by, and, and, and in fact, taking a step back, whether it exists at all. So yeah. as you can see, there's both challenges, but also opportunities with crypto. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure we'll see the case law develop over the coming years as well. Undoubtedly. Well, thank you both. That's been an extremely helpful um, discussion and gives our listeners a lot to think about. But before we wrap up, I just wanted to leave our listeners with some key practical takeaways. So I wanted to ask each of you the following. Say you are sat on the board of a sovereign wealth fund and you're hit by a fraud, or perhaps you're called upon to assist a fund with that fraud. What is your top practical tip for ensuring long-term maximum recovery? And I'll ask Henry that question first. Thanks, Kate. My top tip would be all about strategy, which was um, something I've talked about earlier in terms mm. of the practical uh, steps that need to be taken. It's, I just think it's really important to have a coordinated strategy that doesn't just look at things jurisdiction by jurisdiction or region by region, but looks across the whole global piece and assesses the the sort of legal risk and legal exposure and next steps in a really holistic way. Because I do think there is a real danger in these sorts of um, cases that you can do something or say something in one jurisdiction that comes back to bite you in another jurisdiction mm. uh, further down the road. So just making sure you've got that joined up um, coordinated strategy in place would be my number one top tip. Great. And Charles, how about you? 
Thanks. I couldn't agree more with that, Henry. And and I think closely aligned to that, if I may, um, have two top tips uh, because they're related. Speed of pursuit is essential to act very quickly as part of your strategy, but to be weighed against patience for the outcome. As Henry mentioned earlier, it can be a long process to recover assets, but it's worth it in the end, both for recovery, punishment and future deterrence. Thanks, Charles. And it was a bit cheeky of you to have two, but they were. I'll let you have them. <laughs> well, th- thank you both. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Henry, for that that really, really insightful conversation and the practical tips at the end in particular. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. If you found this podcast helpful, you'll be interested to know that Baker McKenzie, um, as Charles alluded to already, has developed a suite of resources. And these are called the Sovereign Series, Worlds in Motion, where we map out the post-pandemic environment for sovereigns globally. Our latest instalment, The State of State Immunity, is now available on bakermackenzie.com as part of this ongoing series. My name is Kate Geale and thank you so much for listening. We hope you can join us for the next episode of Finsight. Thank you.